Well, this is the July 4th weekend. Are you excited? Oh, I can tell. It's, you're excited because of all the people that are in town, right? You're excited because of the long lines at the grocery store and the empty shelves. You're excited because when you go to the restaurant, it's a six-hour wait. You're excited because tomorrow, in this political year, you will take home about 3,000 fans with people's faces on it, won't you? Isn't that how it is? The parade in an election year, have you noticed, is always about three times as long? So I don't even know how long tomorrow's parade is going to be. But never fear, we have snow cones and cotton candy. I thought that was more exciting than that. No. It, it, is, it is one of those weekends for us in the Keys where um, a holiday that lots of people are coming in, and, and we have a lot to celebrate. Um, we, we remember, uh, in many ways, the, our country's birthday, as some people call it. What, no, 1776, right? Declaration of Independence and all that sort of thing. So what, that makes us 140? No, 240? I'll do the math. 240, is that right? Carry the three. Is that how we're doing this? No, okay. 240. We'll go with 240. Do I hear 245? No. So, so we'll, there'll be lots of celebration. It's an interesting year, not only because of, of the, the holiday, an interesting week, not only because of the holiday, but because of that political thing. Have you, have you noticed there's an election this year? It seems like this election has taken three or four years, doesn't it? I mean, it's been forever. And now it looks like as we're moving toward, is it this month, the conventions are, the, the two major political, I don't know what dates they are, I'm sure we'll, we'll pay attention to them. How many of you watched all the debates? Does anybody get a gold star for watching both, or both parties, every debate that was on? Both parties, not just, just one. I mean, I want the true political hats. Okay, a few, a few people. Hey, uh, by the way, I just warn you, today is sort of my quasi-political sermon. If you've been waiting for it for 17 years, you're, the wait is over, and I promise to offend everybody. So there we go. You know, in, in this election cycle, there's been a lot of talk about Christians or evangelicals and all that sort of thing. And so, you know, maybe you've thought, where does God fall in this whole thing? What would God be? And some of you say, well, God's got to be a Republican. Because God is always right. 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 Maybe not. No, no, okay, so, so may, okay, let me look at it this way. Another thought, maybe God is a Republican, because, you know, Jesus called some disciples. One of them was a tax collector. And another word for tax collector is publican, which is a lot like republican. So must be. And then I got to thinking, you know, I don't know if that's the case because Jesus himself was a free healthcare dispensing machine. <laughs> so maybe we got to go more democratic there, I don't know. Maybe. And, and 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 Jesus said some things about rich people like, you know, rich people can't go to heaven cuz they're going to poke themselves in the eye with a needle. Is that what he said? <laughs> Did I get that wrong? No, so, yeah. Now, now, some of you are like, well, wait a minute, preacher. Let, let's not get carried away because we're independent. And like in, in Joshua chapter 1, 
one of those famous verses where it says, be strong and courageous. Just a few words later, it says, don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. So God must be an independent right down the middle, right? And, and in Proverbs, the wisest man that ever lived, Solomon, he says in Proverbs chapter 4, the same thing. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. So therefore, must be independent. Well, let's not leave out the libertarians, because I'm sure you're, if you're here today, you're going, wait a minute, what about us? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure I know your favorite scripture verse. John 3, 16, everybody knows that one, right? But the libertarians' favorite scripture verse is, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, as in liberated, right? Is everybody offended now? Can we move on? No. We, we, could, we could go on, I'm sure, and have a lot of fun with that, but here's, here's the thing I would say in the midst of all the stuff that happens politically, I don't think Jesus came to take sides. As I understand scripture, Jesus came to take over. Jesus is Lord of all. Whatever label we put beside our name somewhere, whatever box we check, wherever that is, Jesus is Lord. And when I want to talk quasi-political, I I have to start there. I have to, to see from Anywhere I go, as Paul said in Colossians, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Not like when Christ, who's a part of your life. Not, not Christ, who you've got to fit into all the other things in your life you're trying to balance. No, when Christ, who is the sum total of your life, appears. When you understand that everything falls under the umbrella of the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ, even and especially whatever political things we get caught up in, then maybe we begin to see that, that there's some things we can kind of base our, our views on. And today, I, I, I guess if I was saying how I want to title the message, and it's not maybe the typical traditional sort of message, it, it's this, I, I was thinking, let's pretend the president asked me to the White House and I had the chance to speak with the president, the one that's sitting now or the one that will be elected and sworn in uh, next January, what would be some of the things I would want to say given that opportunity? Now, the good news, here's what you can count on. That's not going to (laughs) happen. So there's no danger of me getting to say these things to anybody important except for you, and you're more important than all of them, right? Okay, good. Glad we got that sale. Now, what you're not going to hear me say, for the record, I'm not going to talk about anything economic. Now, I know that, you know, it's the economy, stupid, was that line a few elections ago, always about the economy. And, and a lot of times we do that. There's, there's a verse, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it seems to me sometimes we in, in the church have so focused on the treasure that is in our pocketbook or our bank account or our retirement account that that's where we've put our treasure instead of in the gospel and in the Savior. So I'm not going to talk about that because I don't think that's the kind of thing that I would want to use my time talking about. Another thing I wouldn't say, believe it or not, I'm not going to talk about specific moral issues. You might think that's where he's going to go now. He's going to talk about those things. And there are some things that there's disagreement over. There are some things that I hold very valuable and very true in my personal life. But if I got the opportunity to, to sit face to face with uh, the current or next president of the United States, I wouldn't bring up those specific things. I've I, I boiled it down really to two things I would say. I'm going to talk a little longer to you than 
I would to that individual should I get the chance. But these are the two things that I would say to the president. Number one, I will pray for you. That's biblical. I figure that's a pretty good place to start, right? Paul says in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, by the way, I don't know if the scriptures are up there. I don't know if it worked in all the, the cloud-based sort of computing. So if they show up, great. If they don't, we're on our own. So I'm just going to have to turn to it in my copy of the Bible. Um, and let me see where it is. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's kind of like his, his son in the faith, the one that, that Paul won to Christ and, and wants to, to be successful in his ministry. He's kind of the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy, I'm just stalling for time to get there. Can you tell I didn't mark it? Chapter 2, verse 1. This is what Paul says. I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. So that makes sense. But then he gets specific in verse 2. In verse 2 he says this, For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And then listen to verse 3. This is good and pleases God our Savior. So let me ask you this. How many of you say, yeah, you know what? I want to do what is good and please God and my Savior. Just raise your hand up high. Okay, if you want to do that in this political climate, pray for those in authority. You don't have to worry if that's right or wrong. The Bible says that is good to do. Pray for kings and all those in authority. Now think about Paul writing this, by the way. Now, now we live in, in a world, in a culture, in, in, in our part of this, this country that, that a lot of times in Christian circles we talk about maybe a post-Christian world or an anti-Christian climate and those sorts of things. And that may or may not be true, uh, depending on how you want to parse it out. But think about Paul's climate. When he says, pray for the king, who's he talking about? That would be the emperor. That would be the Caesar, depending on which administration, which, which era it was in. That emperor was literally killing Christians, having them arrested, having them uh, fed to the lions, having them burned at the stake, whatever else the things are. You've read some of the church history. You know that in that climate, it's pretty safe to say Rome was not always happy with the Christian community. And they were aggressively, even Paul, early in his ministry, he is aggressively out to persecute and silence Christians because he's standing up for for the, for the Jewish mindset as a Pharisee, as a leader among the people. So, so the Christians in Paul's day weren't exactly considered powerful or important. They were often marked for persecution and even killed for their faith. So if Paul can write to pray for the leader in that climate, we ain't got it so bad, do we? Some of you are not convinced. That's okay. So I would tell the president, I am praying for you. And this is why I say that. We all, I mean, maybe you even thought, I know he's going to say that today as you were trying to parse. Where is he going with this? Because I know how you are when you bring up these sort of quasi-controversial subjects. You go, oh, where's this going? I wonder what he's going to say. Oh, is he going to say something really controversial? Ooh. <laughs> That's why there was that awkward silence so far in the room. Either that or because it's mostly empty and it's July 4th and you, I don't know. But because you're not sure. And, and you probably even thought in your mind, that's, that's kind of safe. And it's true. It is because it's right there. It's biblical. But here's my 
on the one hand, challenge, and on the other hand, confession. When I think about how much I've said about the political people, the president and other leaders in our country, how many emails I've read or forwarded or received versus the amount of time I've spent in prayer for those same people, guess which wins? It's not prayer. It's easy to talk about someone. It's easy to get together with people who maybe are like-minded and trash people that you don't agree with. It's easy to do that. Makes, sometimes makes you feel good, let's be honest. But how much time have I spent praying for those same individuals? Do you think maybe if the Church of Jesus Christ of all sorts and kinds just spent all that time that we've used writing about, blogging about, emailing about, talking about our political leaders on our knees praying about them, is it possible the country might feel different today? I kind of think maybe it might, which brings me to my second thing I would say. goes right in hand with what we just said. I would say, Mr. President or Mrs. President, Madam President, I guess that's possible nowadays. I'm sorry that the church has failed to be what Jesus called us to be. I'm sorry that we, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, have failed to be the church that he called us to be. See, there was a time not so long ago where you might say the church had influence in America. The church had a voice in America. And that's true. It wasn't too many decades ago. Prominent Christians had things to say and had a national platform. And here's what I fear. The church wasted it trying to make a point instead of trying to make a difference. Churches love to make points. And for years, we've made loud points and tried to do it. Let, let me give you two examples. One comes from several years ago. I attended our state convention. Meets every November all over the state of Florida. And one of the hot-button issues that year was adoption, namely same-sex adoption. It was one of those things, this, this was you know, quite a while ago, if you want to look back on the political calendar, you might could find the exact year, I don't remember when it was. And I remember in that convention, speaker after speaker, at the pastor's conference, which happens the day before, and during the whole convention, speaker after speaker made points about that issue. Made points to standing ovations and amens and all the things that usually happen in that thing, in that kind of a setting where people of supposed like mind get together to rally the troops up often against things that are at issue in our world. And it struck me, I actually kept notes, I, often, I don't often journal, but I journal on those sorts of things when I go to conferences and things, I just write down observations. And one of the things I wrote down after that conference had to do with that very issue. And here's what I wrote. I said, it surprises me that in the midst of all that talk, not once 
did a speaker from the platform encourage us as Christian leaders to actually adopt? There's a lot of talk about who shouldn't. But not once did they say, Church of Jesus Christ, we need to take care of the orphans in our world. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, no less an authority than that, says religion that God our Father considers pure is this. So you want to know what pure religion is. You want to be pure in your religion, in your faith. What does it say? To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And all of that talk the couple of thousand preacher types and church types that were there. Even the one I looked in the mirror back in the hotel after those sessions. If each of us had adopted one child, it wouldn't even be an issue, would it? Would it? Or would it be way less of one? Let me give you another one. Let's, let's fast forward to a more recent issue. There's a lot of talk lately about marriage. What is marriage and all that sort of thing. And once again, church has had a lot to say. Church has had a lot to say vocally about it. But I got to look at myself in the mirror. And here's my takeaway from that. Here's why I would apologize to a president about the, the church and its failures in these areas. I know somebody performed the person's wedding that was actively involved in a church. Actively. Member a whole nine yards. And when they were to be married, they could not get married in their church. The one they were a member of, the one they were participating in, the one they served in, because they couldn't afford it. They had to go rent another church that was cheaper to have their wedding instead of the church that every Sunday they went to and probably when the plate passed by, put money in. That's sad to me. That kind of bothered me when I heard about it. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. I mean, you know, isn't that what we're supposed to be kind of about as the church? We say, we're for marriage, biblical marriage. We're, we want to support. It's a covenant relationship. Uh, apparently it's also a moneymaker. And i got to look me in the eye, because I've gotten the calls locally from resorts that have said, um, you know, we have a couple that's coming into town from whatever place, and, and they're looking for a, a Baptist minister to perform the wedding. Would you be interested? And I wish I could tell you my first thought was about the covenant nature of marriage. But you know what my first thought actually is? I could use a few extra bucks. I've thought that my economy sometimes, and I'm pretty stupid. <laughs> what is, and, and then I want to talk about marriage and how important it is and how many times have I stood in those things thinking, you know, I could use a few bucks for these strangers that are here and I don't know anything about them and I don't know anything about how it's going. So I, I, I don't do that anymore. I've made a decision a while back not to do those kinds of, of things anymore because... I want to not just say the point that I think marriage is important, but I want people to look at my ministry and go, yeah, he actually acts like 
marriage matters. He actually acts like what happens when a, a couple of individuals, man and wife stand, or husband and wife stand before God and their church family, that, that it means something, not he just says it somewhere. The Bible has a lot to say about a lot of things. And, and if we're honest, as the church of Jesus Christ, think we have to admit we haven't lived up to the standard he left us. I think we have to admit in the history of our country, even the recent history, we've wasted whatever clout we have because we wanted to make a point instead of serving our community, serving each other in a way that makes a difference. The Bible has a lot to say about the things that you know, I, I just thought about this one. We just got back from Cuba. Cuba's a fascinating place. Here's what I was amazed at in our time in Cuba is how they treated us. Look, they don't have much. They have very little. I, think, I don't know if we told you this last week when we talked about our trip, but one of the things we did was for the about 50 people that helped with the Bible school, we pooled our resources and we gave all 50 of them the huge gift of $5.00. 5 CUC, which is equi- uh, about equivalent to 5 American dollars. So actually, probably $5.12.15. So pretty close. You wouldn't believe how thrilled they were. You wouldn't. I mean, if I said today, everybody leaves with $5. Yeah, big, hairy, honking deal, preacher. <laughs> I mean, a few people might be like, yeah, I could use 5 bucks. But for the most part, in this room, $5.00 doesn't mean a whole lot. There, the cheer that went up in that room was remarkable. And the reaction to actually, for some of them, maybe holding a $5, 5 CUC note in their hand, maybe for the first time in their lives. I mean, we saw tears over five bucks. Remarkable. And, and why I say that is because how they treated us was incredible. We uh, stayed at the the seminary. It's the Eastern Baptist Seminary. We were over by Santiago. I'm not trying to revisit the mission trip, but, but anyway, th- we, we slept there, and they fed us breakfast every morning, and so when we came to the table, on the table was usually fruit, um, mangoes, because mangoes are everywhere. There was, what, how many trees of mangoes at that place? Five or six, and, you know, so mangoes, pineapple, um, sometimes guava. We had eggs. What, 15 of us or so? probably close to 20 when you added our translators and others, had eggs. They don't eat eggs. Eggs are rare to get over there. We had eggs every morning. That's a big deal. We usually had some sort of bread. We had cheese that they got from a local farmer around the area. And we think, well, you know, eggs, bread, cheese, coffee, juice, what's the big deal? We ask at our table was um, one of the translators that went with us to help us communicate for those of us gringos who don't speak such good Spanish. Um, And we asked her one day, what do you usually get? Because she was a student at the seminary, so they feed them breakfast. What's your breakfast usually? And she pointed to to the basket of bread. She said, usually that's all we get for us. Then we went to the church for lunch or and dinner. I think every meal when we sat down at our plate, there was a a small plate full of fruit. 
Again, mangoes, pineapple, guava, papaya, mamey. What else did we get? I don't even know what else. Lots of stuff. And then there was a salad on the table, uh, like a platter of salad, which was tomatoes, cucumber, some shredded cabbage, beets. Uh, let's see, what else? There were different kind of, there was a squash on there sometimes. Were there pickles sometimes? I don't know. There was stuff. Like three or four big plates of salad. And then they brought in usually some sort of rice and beans. Got garbanzo beans, soup one day. We got some, uh, what other beans did we get? I'm looking because of black beans. So we got red beans one day. We got that. And then you think, well, that's enough. A bowl, you put your, your rice and your beans in it. And then they bring in the platter of chicken quarters or pork chops. They don't eat like that. They might get the fruit because it's growing around. They can pick it. And that's not what they eat. I'm convinced. I mean, we, of course, we sent money to help buy our lunch, but I'm convinced they would have spent their own money and not eaten to feed us when we were there. I'm convinced of that. I, I have no doubt. Now, I'd like to say this is what makes me feel a little bit better at that church, those 50 or so people, probably more than that when you count the kitchen crew and others, 50, 60 people, because we were there eating and we couldn't eat all they gave us, a lot of them got to eat better than they do all the time that week we were there. So that tried to, you know, try to make myself feel a little bit better. A little bit. <laughs> sort of works for a few minutes until I remember that I'm not there today and I don't know what they're eating for lunch. I know they probably had a piece of bread for breakfast. Maybe some fruit, I don't know. I mean, that's remarkable to me that, that they, I, I'm going to say, I think they did it, one, because we were guests, and, and that's how they were taught to treat guests. And I think it was also because, in their mind, we were missionaries of some sort. We were coming to help and serve them, and they wanted to take care of us no matter what it took. It's remarkable in hindsight. You read the Bible. There, it says a lot, by the way, about how you're supposed to treat the stranger or the alien or the sojourner. The whole Old Testament, time and again, just look up those few words and they show up over and over. It talks about how you should treat the poor. There's a whole bunch of laws in the Old Testament that says when you're, when you're gleaning your field, when you're harvesting your crop, don't go to the very edges. Leave the, and if you drop anything when you're harvesting, don't pick it up. Leave it there. Because then the stranger or the poor or the alien can come through and pick it up and they can eat. It also says there's a, there's a year you're not supposed to, to mess with your field at all. And anything that grows in your field during that Sabbath year, that, that fallow year, anybody that needs it can come to the field and pick it and eat it. kind of remarkable, isn't it? That God would, would say things like that. That he would tell us that that's, tell his people that that's how they should live, the Old Testament. And I think by implication, though we don't necessarily glean our crops the way they did, the principle of how we treat people orphans and widows as we looked in James and here the, the, the foreigner or the alien or the poor. This says a lot to us. So that's why I would say 
I heard a pastor say this years ago, and you know, just thinking about it recently, maybe he had a point. His point was this. If the church had done what the church should have done, we wouldn't have a need in America for a welfare program because the church would take care of the people that need to take care of. may be true. I don't know. I haven't done the research, but it's a principle that I've got to think, much like when they talk to us Baptist convention types, if we would have all gone out and made some decisions about adoption or foster care, maybe that need wouldn't be so great. And if we as the church would have looked for ways, and we are, by the way, looking for ways. We have a group of people on Wednesday that come and, and that serve a meal, and, and we don't charge for it. It's free, not because, you know, it doesn't cost money to prepare food, but because we don't want that ever to be a barrier in that setting for somebody coming in. And the surprising thing I've heard from some of the people that help is even people that can't maybe really afford to to pay for a meal, still put a few dollars in because they want to feel like they're contributing in some way to, to what's happening. We do these things like that. And other churches in our area do them too. And other churches around the world do them. But it, my point isn't that we don't do them. It's maybe in our focus on things, we've thought too small about some things and too big about others might be why if the church would be the church that Jesus called us to be, this world might look a little differently. Now, now by the way, I understand prophecy, and I understand things are going to get worse. I read the end of the book. So, so I get that that's also at work here. I get that, that there are some things going on. In fact, one of the verses in this context that jumps out to me has to be Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 set the stage for you. You may know that verse offhand. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give some answers. You know, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then he changes the, the pronoun from the people to you. Who do you my disciples, the ones closest to me, the ones that have followed me around and watched me perform miracles and heard me preach and seen what's happening. Who do you say that I am? And our good friend Peter speaks up. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Great confession of faith that he makes in that moment. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Simon, son of Jonah. Nope, you didn't come, by, come up with that on your own. And I was sort of inspired. And he goes on and he says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church. The gates of Hades won't overcome it. That's, that's good news, right? That's a promise from Jesus himself. Who's building the church? Who does Jesus say is going to build the church? Jesus does. Isn't that good news? Whose church is it? People say, is that your church? I say, no. No, uh-uh. I don't want it. It's got an owner. It's got a head. It ain't me. The head of the church, the head of this church, is Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior forevermore. Not me, 
Not the deacons, not any committee, not any individual, not any board, not any denomination. Jesus himself. And he promises to build his church. That is good news. You say, but yeah, it says that. The, the gates of hell won't overcome it. But this world, it just seems like it's getting darker and darker and darker. Maybe. I guess. Probably fair in some ways. Less and less concern about God, less and less concern about the things of faith in Christ. That's probably fair. But is there a positive in that? I've used this illustration before, but I was reminded of it last night. See, we have a little device uh, that gets the signal from the satellite to our TV. You might have one of those in your house, too, or maybe it's through a cable. It's got a little light on it. It's a little green light. It's a stupid little green light. Stupid. I mean, it's on all the time. Now, I usually don't notice that stupid little green light. I call it stupid for a reason. But at night, in our bedroom, that little green light right beside our TV is like eye level. It is like a laser beam at 2 a.m. right to my eyeball. And at 2 a.m., that stupid little green light is like a spotlight. I think the helicopters are circling. La- we, we, have a, we have a towel we put over that box to block out the green light. Well, last night the towel fell off, and I awaked to, to somebody scanning my brain through that stupid green light. And I got up and covered that dog on green light because was, it was so bright. If you went in and saw it today, you got that little thing? Hey, listen, maybe the darkness of the world just gives the light of Jesus Christ the better ability to shine. Sure, it's getting darker. Sure, things happen. Sure that this or that. Hey, hey, here's something. I don't know who's going to be elected president. I'm not going to tell you who I'm going to vote for. One, because I don't know. But I can tell you this. No matter who is sworn in next January, even if it's the person that you think is the worst possible scenario and the end of life as we know it, Jesus will have not been put back in that tomb. He will still be seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He will still be King of kings and Lord of lords. And there is nothing a president or a congress or Supreme Court justices can do to overthrow the God who rules the universe with his feet up. We might fret. We might stress. We might, as I do sometimes, yell at the TV over what's happening. But God is not bothered. God is not threatened by anything that's happening. He is still God. He is still the Almighty Holy One. And we, as His people, have the privilege of representing Him here in this maybe increasingly darkening world that gives us a chance to shine that light a little brighter. We sang My Lighthouse not long ago, earlier in the service. Fun song. I kind of like that one. Oh, not, Jesus said, do you, do you hide a light? Do you kind of keep it?
down here. No, where do you put it? You put it up on a hill. You put it where it can be seen. Listen, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I've said that already. I don't pretend to predict. I don't pretend to tell you who's right and who's wrong. Except to say, I still think the Church of Jesus Christ is the greatest hope for our country. I still think we as God's people hold the truth of the gospel. And no matter what happens, I still think the Great Commission stands. That we are to go and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that God's commanded us. And when we do that, what does Jesus say? I'm with you always. I don't know, maybe that's just me. I like to hold on to things sometimes that in the midst of uncertainty kind of make sense. So if that's you today, two quick things. If you want to make God happy, two Tim, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, pray for your leaders, no matter who they are, pray for them. And if you want to know that God is with you, Jesus said, here's the Great Commission. You want to know what, what is the, the sign that I'm with you? You want to know what you can do to be sure I'm right there in it with you? Go make disciples. Go tell people about me. He left us a symbol as, as his church, a reminder of why that's important. We call it the Lord's Supper here in our church. It's uh, called different things, sometimes communion and other things in different places. And we're going we're gonna to take that together today. Um, and, and in the Lord's Supper, we have a proclamation. Yes, it's a symbolic reminder, but it also, in this, proclaims something. We proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes again. So yeah, the death sounds negative, right? I mean, talk about, let's talk about the resurrection. That's happy, happy. Happy day, right? We sang that too. The death of Jesus is what we proclaim because in his death is the punishment, the penalty for our sins paid. And by proclaiming his death in this supper, we also proclaim that he's coming again. The hope that we're awaiting isn't the outcome of the next election, but it's the trumpet that will one day sound and the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll, as the song says. And the Lord himself will descend. If I'm not mistaken, the hymn, the hymn says, when that happens, we will say, it is well with my soul. I'm going to invite our deacons to come forward with the elements of the supper so we can take that together. I'm going to invite all who are here who know Christ as Savior and Lord. You don't necessarily have to be a member of our church. We practice the technical term is called open communion, which means anybody who knows Christ as Savior is welcome to take these elements together, to proclaim with us the goodness of our God who sent his one and only son to die and will one day come again. I like Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 11. 
one of the reasons I like it is because of how it starts. He writes, on the night Jesus was betrayed. He starts this account of the Lord's Supper, of communion, of this, this picture of hope and salvation by reminding us the circumstances were pretty dark. One of the 12 closest to Jesus betrays him to the authorities that will kill him. It was on that night, having washed his disciples' feet, having talked to them about some of the last things he would ever say, that the scriptures record that he took bread and he gave thanks for it. Carlos.